host, Aristotle Bingo, and joining me today is Dr. Kirsten Wooden, Dean at Trent Fleming School of Nursing. Dr. Wooden is a left above knee amputee from a motorcycle accident in 2017 and have elected to have osteointegration procedure in Australia in 2018. However, it has not been the smoothest journeys for her. So welcome to the show, Dr. Wooden, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Aristotle. I'm happy to be here. Let's perhaps start with the day in June. Can you share what happened with before becoming an above the amputee? Well, I, 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 all of you want to hearken back to the summer of 2017. It was not a nice summer. And we'd had a lot of rain and cold weather. And lo and behold, one day we got up, I think the 21st of June, and it was really nice. So I had meetings in the morning. I went to my office, but I called my husband and I said, why don't we take the afternoon off and finally get out on our motorcycles in some nice weather? And we went for a ride and on, I didn't manage a corner and intersected with a car. I fortunately have no memory from about 10 minutes before the accident until I came out of ICU. So I was uh, airlifted from our local hospital. So I live in a, in a smaller community near Peterborough. And I was airlifted from there to St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. And as you can imagine, um, a, a free flying form intersecting with a car at over 80 kilometers per hour. Um, I misplaced my leg, but I also um, did other damage as well as, as crushing my lower left leg. So. From looking at the operative report, and, and I am a nurse, so um, looking at the, the operative report, it appears that I severed my popliteal artery. So that's a pretty important blood flow to the lower part of your leg. And uh, that, in fact, by the time I got there, there was a little bit of necrosis. There was quite a lot of crushing in the lower leg. I also had uh, a, a comminuted uh, compound fracture in my femur, about eight inches above my knee, and I fractured my left hip as well. So I did a really good job all the way up. So they did save my leg um, from mid-knee up, uh, but were unable to say, save the leg below the knee. And I must say, after sitting and reading many of the stories, and many of you who are listening, many of your stories where they did limb salvage, and then you go on to multiple surgeries, I, I actually am rather grateful they were unable to save my, my leg because I was actually back to work five months after my accident and had they tried to salvage it, I think it would have been a, a much longer journey. So they, they put a nail in my femur and they did try to affix the top and bottom parts of my femur that had been broken and they, they put a compression screw in my hip to put that together. But I had a knee disarticulation um, at that time. Now I'm now left above knee and, and I'm sure most of you know that a knee disarticulation is in essence from a prosthetic perspective, the same as an above knee amputation. That is you need a knee. So. It wasn't a disarticulation first, and then you had a revision at another point, because you said you came back to work five months after that, right? So was it all done in sort of, first it's need disarticulation, you know what, we decided we're just going to go above the knee, because for prosthetic use, it is sometimes better to just have an above knee and then have a knee prosthetic in mind anyway to begin with. 
No, and actually, there's a there's lots of literature on it. Knee disarticulations are are good. I mean, admittedly, your knees aren't at the same level, but you do have a longer um, driving lever, and so it is it can be better to have a knee disarticulation than an above knee. But what happened was I had this darn fracture, this this comminuted compound fracture about about eight inches above where the original amputation was, and a year after the accident, I still had absolutely no bony bridging, no healing at all in that fracture. And so the orthopedic surgeon in Toronto that I was seeing in follow-up um, suggested that the next move was to be reamputated um, at that level. And, um, and I gave that some thought and it, it wasn't sitting nicely with me at all. And I was really fortunate because my prosthetist here in Peterborough is part of this PBO group that has been very involved in, in learning more about and teaching more about osseointegration. And they had had a session actually sort of to celebrate the first osseointegration done in Canada. And so there was that same day, there was a session held at the Peterborough Library, and we had um, Matt Boileau, who is a below knee and, and I've forgotten his name, an American who's an above knee and both were osseointegrated, came and joined us and, and I had a chance to talk to them. Wasn't thinking about knee disarticulation, wasn't thinking about osseointegration at that time, but when I was facing another amputation, a higher amputation, um, it was then another option that I considered. And actually, as soon as they confirmed um, that there was no, no osseous bridging, no healing whatsoever, and that amputation, re-amputation looked like the way to go, I reached out to Australia and sent my x-rays there to look at that possibility. And so can you take us through that procedure then of getting funding or getting support to go to Australia, like what sort of the, the you know, if, if a person is considering from Canada to have the procedure in Australia, can you take us through that and sort of explain your process for getting there? My process was a little easier and a lot more expensive than it would be for most people who have had to go to Australia. Um, most people who have gone to Australia have had to get lots of letters and, and supports to, to um, argue with OHIP that it should be covered under OHIP. Um, they have not, OHIP has not covered, it covered some of the original ones recently. It has not been covering them. And now we do it in Canada. I would be surprised actually if OHIP covered it. Um, I did a very fast thing. So I did apply to OHIP and I was denied. But I mean, it was June when I, that the option was given to me that really I was looking at another amputation. And, and I actually had the OSEO integration done in July. So, you know, I did this on six or seven weeks turnaround. It really not possible for anybody. I happened to be in a bit of a privileged position. I had a little money tucked aside. And as you know, OSEO integration is extremely expensive in Australia. And I had enough money to, to do all the applications and take the risk. So I was denied by OHIP on the grounds that the surgery was experimental. And, uh, and I was also denied by my own health insurance company with my employer, um, again, on, on those grounds. And so I went thinking that I probably was going to end up bearing the whole cost. But you really need to keep this in mind if you're deciding on OSEO integration that, that you may not be 
able to do it in as quick a way as I did it. So we, it was just a flurry because obviously I have horses and donkeys and dogs. And so we had to find somebody who could move into our house for, for, for the, the almost four weeks that we needed to be on Australia. We had to get visas and, and I had to have some of the, the tests done that the hospital in Australia wanted done in advance. It, it was just, and I was working full time the whole time. So it was an incredible whirlwind six or seven weeks um, from deciding that I was going to do this and talking with Dr. Amadarius in Australia and then getting there two days ahead of my surgery date of the of July 25th. So, so my journey was, uh, was a little bit different because I happened to have this money tech deciding could take the risk in the long run. The motor vehicle insurance did pay a fair bit of the cost of it, but when I went, I, I didn't know if any of it would be covered. Mm. And so then you flew to Australia, and then remind me again, there's the Australian way of doing Aussie integration compared to the Dutch version of doing the Aussie integration. So you had one shot at doing this, which is the Australian version of it. So you had both the amputation and the insertion of the OI. Yeah, take us maybe to, through that process. Okay, so depending on where you go, and even in Australia, um, they used to do the two-step process. And that's where they put the implant into the femur and close things up again. And then you have that there for a while and you go back and and they then put in the, the, the you know the bird's eye view at the end of your your stump and and put in the attachments so that you can attach your external prosthesis. Um, I could not have done that. Uh, and I know I sound obsessive, but I I very much enjoy my work, and and I was unwilling to take uh, that amount of time that would have been involved for me to do a two-step procedure. So, so the idea of a two-step procedure was completely out. The other reason why it was a whirlwind for me was, was although um, courses and everything run all summer in our program, it is still a bit more of a quiet time, and it's traditional to take one's vacation, and so I could take a month of vacation to have have this done in Australia, sort of in that one short time period. So I really needed to, to rush for it. So um, I, the two-step would absolutely not have been an option for me because of the amount of time. Also was unwilling to be off leg. I mean, one of the options for me was for them to try again to, to get that fracture to heal. And, and then again, I would have been longer off work and longer not walking, whereas this approach and even if I'd been reamputated in Canada, and I've always been a bit irritated with OHIP because they got out of the cost of a reamputation, which I was going to have to have anyway. So I've always felt, you know, mildly ripped off about all of this. I say that in jest. Um, but um, the, even that, I would have been off my leg for, for longer. Whereas with osseo integration, I was down there. Um, you had to be there two days ahead of time for tests. I was five days in hospital because although I am an older, I'm a senior, um, I, I tend, I'm very lucky, I'm, I'm pretty healthy and it was a simple five days. So I was in one day for the surgery and exactly five days later I was out and in our apartment and, and entering rehab. And less than two weeks after that, ex attaching the external prosthesis. So, so well, about two weeks to, to being able to start weight bearing again, much, much faster than, than some of the alternatives that were available to me had I stayed in Canada. I guess one of the costs that sometimes not looked at when thinking about this procedure is not just the cost of the surgery alone. You mentioned the apartment and mm -hmm. 
that's got to be included in your overall cost also on top of the prosthesis and, and everything else that comes after the surgery. So you did you have to rent in a, a hotel or an apartment in Australia for the duration of the time that you're there? And, and you said it's about five weeks that you're there for? Um, just under four weeks we were we were there. And, and uh, sort of when you commit to doing it there, they ask you to commit to staying for that period after the surgery so that you can have rehab there. Um, and so we stayed in a hotel suite. Um, I think one hotel room I might have had to kill my husband, and that would not have been a good thing. Um, but but we were in a hotel suite with a kitchenette, and which was rather nice because who wants to eat out every day as well? Um, and and we actually got to do a bit of traveling while we were there. We figured out how with my motorized scooter to to get onto the train system and even onto a bus for heaven's sake, so that we were able to go in and see the botanical gardens and and do some touristing while we were there on weekends. I had to be at the hospital every day during during the week. So yes, there's that cost. There's cost of food um, when you were there. Um, I was lucky that that I think originally when this was done early on, I mean, you've, you've talked about Peggy in some of your other interviews. I think that there was a different process where there were different prosthetic parts used. Now you can actually just, you take your prosthetic with you and use the same prosthesis. So the, 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 I was using a freedom knee with an Oser low profile foot and I had that with me and that was what I used afterwards. I didn't have to buy that new parts. There were connectors that that were new and obviously the cost of the implant that was part of it as well had one required ICU for instance had things not gone as smoothly there would have been an additional cost for ICU as well and it was a private hospital so I wouldn't even want to begin to think about what what that might have have cost so right I was going to ask you it's a good thing you brought that up about the prosthetics so in earlier procedures of folks coming back from Australia is that they they don't have the knee that they have with them when they get there. So they're given a temporary knee, you know, for example, either mechanical or, or just the most basic knee. And then they, they come back and then their prosthesis works with them to get their actual knee in uh, and weight bearing on that knee and actually working with that knee and doing rehab with that knee. But in your experience, you're able to bring your knee over there, have, atta- have that attached post-surgery and actually start rehabbing with your knee correct yeah and that's much nicer than using i mean i i use i'm i'm privileged and i had a freedom plie at that time and and i think it would have been challenging for me to start to rehab with a mechanical knee that i wasn't familiar with the other nice thing though for me the secondary benefit is when you have a knee disarticulation while you need a knee and you need a foot there isn't as much space between you and the ground to fit those components in and so having the the higher amputation that I needed in order to get rid of that unhealed fracture and osseointegration meant that I could actually move to to a knee and foot which were even better than the ones that I've had and and helping with my mobility much more and so about six months after um, my surgery my osseointegration I actually moved to um, a genium knee and I still use my freedom plie every once in a while for some some of the the circuit training that I do. It it's a little bit easier to use it, um, but it, it makes me appreciate how much more my genium has to offer me. 
Of course. And now also because of you being a disarticulate before, so that's a much shorter knee. I mean, that's just adding pylons to, to make sure the length is the same. But I guess now your knees are actually at the same, somewhat at the same level so that they bend properly in the same, you know, when you're sitting down and, and all that. So much more ergonomically designed, I suppose, uh, with the um, with an above knee than a disarticulated knee uh, to have room for for the extended gym. So, well, that's good to hear. So, the, so you were saying that you're using your play now for your active stuff and okay. describe oh, to us some of your activity. Oh, so, so I was very privileged. Um, there's a, a charity in the UK and Britain called Limb Power. And I have always used their videos, even after my first amputation and then after the re-amputation and osseointegration in order to, to gain confidence and improve my gait. I use their limb power videos. They're free. You can just go online, find limb power and look at their videos. And, and they're excellent if you need motivation or you need sort of guidance to do things. And they're for different levels of amputation, different levels of ability. But because I connected with, with limb power, I became aware that they have a coaching program called Revamp. They're just designing it and trialing it. And they have a, a coach who's actually no, known for par Paralympics. Um, who guides this program at present. This is a, a, a unilateral amputee, leg amputee program that I'm in now. They're going to launch a bilateral and they're going to also then have uh, an upper limb uh, program. And I'm now in my 10th week of this program. And it's been kind of amazing to have a program that's particularly set up for amputees. We do circuit training four days a week. I think very evil things about the coach some mornings as I'm sweating my head off working hard. And I actually only use the plie knee when I'm doing things like uh, flutter kicks and leg lifts and so on, because it doesn't bend as quickly as the genium. And it's a, it's a little, and it's lighter. It's kind of cheating because the, my genium with my meridian foot is really heavy. It's like having a, a brick on the end of your leg. Try to do leg lifts. Your abs are really working. So, so I cheat and I, I, I use my freedom knee, which is lighter and the foot's lighter when I have to do things like flutter kicks and leg lifts, but, but it's been an amazing program and I hope that they'll expand it. Maybe something like that'll be in Canada. So, and it's successful in COVID because you don't meet in person, you're doing it online. So. Right. No, I think that's, that's, that's really good to know. You know, sometimes I, for myself as a bilateral, I have to adapt many workouts. It's just that I've been going to the gym forever and ever. And I just, figured, oh, I'll work it out this way. But to have a guided training like that, especially for, for folks who are just starting to get back into getting stronger, um, which I believe is really important. And I always see this to new amputees. You have to get strong if you're choosing to wear prosthetics post-amputation. Yeah. You know, you can worry about prosthetics later, but unless you're really strong, it could be difficult for you to be wearing prosthetics. And now you talked about a genium knee and a plie knee and a meridian foot, right? Is that correct? Right yeah. now, power. Medium, so uh, no, I, 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 I don't, they don't recommend empowers for osseo integration. I think. Right. So you have a two mechanical things or two um, microprocessor things. You have a microprocessor ankle and a microprocessor knee. The interaction between the two microprocessors. Um, how does it compare to your sound leg? I'm, obviously, your sound leg is not going to be, or your prosthetic leg is never going to be your sound leg. And and I think that's that's something that we need to address is that. Your, your amputated leg or your prosthetic leg is not going to feel just like what your other leg felt like, or it's not going to feel like it is attached to you. Um, but how are you, 
how do you find your gait, your uses of energy throughout the day with the activities that you do with two microprocessor um, prosthetics? Well, um, I, I actually do fairly well, but as you can see that I'm also pretty careful despite being an old lady to make sure that I remain as active. And I very much have a desk job, which is why I have to be make sure that I am being, being very active. Um, you're right. A prosthetic knee will never be a, a real knee. It, it doesn't operate in the same way. I'm, I, although I think my meridian foot comes closer to being like a real foot. So I use a treadmill desk when I'm at work. You know, most of us are working at home quite a bit these days with COVID, but um, I have a, a treadmill desk at work and I find it much, much easier with the, the articulated foot to walk on the treadmill. Although it, it's like, if it's not alive, if you, if it, the battery's not running. It's like having a brick at the end of your leg. But when it's active, I find it quite. And, and of course, they're heavy, much heavier than my freedom. But I think the weight helps with gait as well. So oddly enough, and this is one of the, although I've had many challenges with osseointegration, I would argue that my um, oxygen consumption per step is actually lower, despite the fact that my leg is about eight inches shorter than it was before osseointegration. Um, and, and the other thing is that I live on hilly property. And I don't know how many of you have experienced when you climb a hill, it's like your socket is preventing all the blood that your, your leg, whether your lower leg or your thigh, needs to climb that hill. With osseointegration, you don't have that limit. And so I had lost a lot of muscle in my left thigh and um, and so much so that I was really becoming aware that the fact that I have a dynamic hip screw, part of which sits outside your femur. And I have hugely gained muscle in my left thigh as a result of having it free of a socket and actually using it. The other thing I want to say is you were talking about your leg. You know, it's your prosthetics leg's never going to be your leg. And you're right, it never <clears> will be. Osseointegration isn't magic. But um, there are a couple of qualitative studies that have been published. And the first one's quite fascinating to read the feedback of people who've been osseointegrated and, and talking about how suddenly they're actually integrating their, their prosthetic into their perceptions of self. Do you know that much more with the direct connection, your leg, your mind starts to accept that leg as being your leg and not like a crutch you stick on your leg, you know? And I, I have had that same experience as well. I'm much more integrated with my prosthesis than I ever was before osseointegration. So you mentioned um, wearing a socket. So have you had any issues with sockets or you just, after you saw the presentation, like, you know what, I'm going to go ahead with that instead of having to have the, having to go ahead with a revision and see how it goes. Like you, you went on a standard socket as well, right? Yes. No, don't, don't forget that a, a socket for a knee disarticulation is slightly different. It, it comes right up almost to your groin, but not past your groin the way away a normal above knee socket. Um, and, and that was one of the things that waited. I being my me, I created a table of all my different options with all the different pros and cons for osseo integration versus, versus having reamputation and having a, a higher socket versus um, trying to go ahead and have a repair of my, my femur. Um, and, and the the thought of a more intrusive socket when I was already having some skin problems and pretty much had a constant bruise around the top of my socket. Um, the idea of the even higher socket 
um, and the challenges of sitting in that intrusiveness, I just, for me, it was really difficult to get my head around that. It, it was incredibly depressing for me to think about it. And I want to say that very carefully because I know many people very successfully wear those sockets. Um, but, but that was one of the things that pushed me towards osseointegration integration was the idea that already I find the socket intrusive. Um, it, it, it touches up in near my groin and depending on how I'm moving. And now if I have this higher amputation that they're telling me I need, I'm going to have a, a socket that's always sitting underneath me to an even greater extent than this one is. I'm already having bruising. What kind of bruising am I going to have from that? You know, I just, I just couldn't get my head around it. It really did. It was the main push for me to say, if I have to have a re-amputation, I'm going for osseointegration. And I would have been happy to stay. I probably would have stayed forever with my other socket had my my femur healed. You know, I probably still would be a knee dysartic wearing a socket. Right. Yeah. Now, um, you're a nurse. What was that experience like being at the bedside instead of being or in the bed instead of being bedside explaining to somebody the science of what's going on in your own body? Because you know it from your being a nurse as your job and now you're receiving the care. So what was that experience like for you to, to, to I guess, dip your toe in both worlds while in recovery? Well, I hated it. And mostly I've, uh, in, in, I, when I, before I moved into academia, I, I was in, in bedside nursing, if you want to call it that. And so hospitals were not an uncomfortable place for me. Um, over my dead body, will you get me back into a hospital? <laughs> yeah, and it might be. But um, it, it was not, for me, a pleasant experience. And, I, and you know something, in the early days, when you're being you know, bed-bathed and treated like a body and not as a human... It was a really eye-opening experience for me. In fact, it really made me wish I hadn't survived the motorcycle accident. It was, it was for me, such a horrendously undignified experience. It was very challenging. I've come to a better place about it now. I wrote a lot of poetry in those early days to, as my outlet for, for my response to all, all of this. Um, I, I must say I came away... And I'm an educator. I educate nurses. And, and it really made me think about, about one of what I saw was one of the biggest failings in nursing. And that was the capacity to advocate for patients. And I really, as a nurse, I feel like that's so central to what it is we do. And yet most of the advocacy that I received came from therapists and from physicians and not from nurses. And that's really where I felt it should have come from. And so now I'm back in my job and working as an educator, I've got a really different perspective on students' attempt to advocate for themselves and our role as educators in strengthening their capacity to do that in useful ways and understanding that advocacy, I mean, it has to be part, it should be very strongly part of the nurse's role. Who is with you in the hospital more than a nurse? And if they're not advocating for you, and it, uh, who, who's doing that, although you need to advocate for yourself as well. And I think that's one of the things I find challenging now, and I'm sure my caregivers, including my prosthetist, as he's trying to do something with my prosthetic, and I'm leaning over with the hex key doing it myself, because that's me. Um, I tend to jump in there, maybe because I'm a healthcare professional, I, I have a little trouble sitting back and being the patient. I tend to try to control situations. Uh, and so that's challenging too, but maybe more challenging for my caregivers than it is for me. So. 
Right. I can just say, I can just imagine you going, no, that's not how you wrap that. This is how you wrap that. Use your, your own body as a teaching, you know, as a teaching tool. No, I, you know, I, I side conversation to that. So when I was in recovery, there were a lot of nursing students that comes in with their, you know, with their instructors and their teachers and their professors as a nurse is showing them how to clean my wound up or, or whatever it may be. Did you have to bite your tongue in a lot of those, or did that ever come up to, to while you're in recovery? I, uh, it may have while I was at St. Mike's, although um, when I was still in St. Mike's, I, I wasn't always, you know, particularly in the early days, as clued in as I might be to who was a student and who wasn't. At, at, um, back at our local hospital, I had to ask that no students be permitted to care for me, or, or it would have been a conflict of interest, because eventually I was... Yeah into to my role as as head of the nursing school and so um i i had to make it clear that i couldn't now i was cared for by rpn students who come from the college and right <laughs> the funny story with one of them was coming in she was going to give me my medications and i work very closely with our partner college and the dean of that college was in visiting me in the hospital that day so here are two deans of nursing programs one of the college and one of the university sitting with each other and I don't know if this poor student knew what she was coming into, but she came in to give me my medications and I decided to play the role of, you know, pain in the neck patient. And so I asked her to explain to me what each of my medications for and why am I taking that? And the poor young woman. That was so mean of me. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing in the background and people can see that because I, having spent many a years in hospitals in recovery and, and and different things i get to learn and you talking about advocating for yourself i get to learn how to advocate for myself so i know the medications i'm taking i know the dosage they're on taking i know when to take them i've been taking them all my life right and so sometimes when i have these nurses i do test them as well but i figured it'll be just trying to picture that room Talk about pressure with the two deans of the school that's sitting there. And I'm I'm just trying to get through my day as a student here. Like, can I please have another patient? You know, their eyes are on me. <laughs> Not only that, it's like, oh my gosh, if I fail at this, they're going to tell my teacher and they're going to ask them, you didn't teach her this part or oh, you didn't teach him this part. <laughs> but But you do raise the point of advocacy and and i think particularly when you've chosen journeys such as osseo and where i've had challenges as well is that i think sometimes we feel like we have to apologize when we're going to to advocate for ourselves and it certainly sounds to me aristotle as if as if you've had to and you've had to had to work that out what where how how much do i say this is the way it should be but these are our bodies all amputees we own our bodies. We're the ones that have to live with it for the rest of our lives. Nobody has the investment that we do. And so I really think it's important that if we either advocate for ourselves or we get somebody, a friend or a family member who, who also can support our feeling strong about advocating for ourselves. I, I absolutely agree about that. I think we need to learn how to speak more and really, sh you know, tell them how we're feeling. I find a lot of new amputees when they cannot speak to prosthetists because they just don't know what they don't know. But they're also afraid to ask because of, well, I'm going to sound, you know, not very smart if I ask that question. But then to your point, it's like it is your body and you should know what it feels like. And, and if it doesn't feel right, 
do say something because they don't know what they don't know either. Right. So I think it's also for us to investigate and and spend the time to research, talk to others about mm-hmm. how they feel and what they should be expecting. Even though I do say that we're all unique within ourselves, but it's also good to have a, a, a parameter, if you will, of this is how it's supposed to feel like. To my example before about saying it may feel like a brand new boot. Now you're going in there with the expectation. Yes, it is going to feel like there's something that's encased, you know, encasing my residual limb, right? So you have that frame of mind at least going in there, not going, oh, this doesn't feel right, you know? So so thank you absolutely for that. You also need to speak up when it doesn't feel right. I mean, and I'm sure you know very well, but um, I, I use um, uh, uh, liners in my shoe on my, my intact side. And if they're even different in millimeters, I, I have lower back pain and sciatica. So it's also important to, to realize that what you're feeling may well be real and that that's something you need to, to communicate to your care professional and figure out so that your, your ability to be mobile isn't restricted by, let's say, lower back pain because one limb isn't quite this, the right length. or Right. Or, no, or of course. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely, for sure. Now, in the intro, we talked about how you didn't have the smoothest journey uh, to this amputation. So maybe take us through that experience and, and share with that with our listeners that story. Yeah, because I think it's important to know um, that I think we put osseointegration up there and I see people posting on, on the support website about how, you know, the surgeon that did their osseointegration is sort of right hand to God uh, because their lives have been turned around completely. The reality is it's a surgery. They're not, you're not getting your leg back and, and it's never going to be the same as having uh, your leg back. And, and so there are challenges. And, and while I've had numerous challenges and I'm gonna categorize them in two lumps, one of them is technical and one of them is physical. Uh, and, and I'm gonna sound like I'm complaining about things, but I still think that I made the right decision. So I researched it very well ahead of time and I knew what the challenges would be. I didn't know about the mechanical, the technical challenges, but let me start with the physical ones. And that is while I was still in Australia, I developed um, cellulitis and needed to be on antibiotics. Um, After returning back to Canada, the infection in my stoma recurred. And again, I needed to be on another bout of antibiotics. I didn't do too badly until um, COVID started. And then I think the, the, the maybe, I don't know maybe if it's related or not, but I think to some extent, the, the being less mobile when you're working at home, and I didn't have my treadmill desk at work, but also because um, I have developed quite a lot of loose tissue in my thigh muscle, which actually hangs down and, and makes contact with the connectors um, for the prosthetic, which is, is um, unpleasant and can, can leave you with sores, but also means it's a lot of movement tissue there and it means that my stoma is to some extent covered by this tissue when I'm upright and and so maybe creating an environment for infection and so since April I actually have had four stoma infections so now I'm now at six and I am about two years and a bit post osseo integration and this last bit I'm I'm on a longer term antibiotics and and I'm actually now I'm going to be meeting my third surgeon so I just love going and visiting physicians it's always been one of the things that I avoided like the plague and now it's become you know like 
a visit to a friend. And uh, no. And so now I'm I'm going to have a meeting with a third surgeon to to look at the idea of having a, a thigh lift. And at my age, I should be having a facelift, not a thigh lift. But it's the thigh lift that I need to, potentially to try to stop. <laughs> Um, and and potentially a stoma revision. I have massive hypergranulation around my stomas. So of all the stomas that I've seen on, on our peer support groups, I think I win the prize for having the most gruesome looking stoma. And my argument would be that I'm actually like a salamander and I'm trying to regrow my leg. It's just a little slow. Um, so, so that's a challenge. And I know know that I'm not the only person. So I know from looking at the literature that multiple infections, multiple superficial infections are a risk. Um, obviously, I've now had bone scans because um, my physicians are conscientious and worry that given the multiple infections that I could end up with osteomyelitis. And to date, I've been lucky. Um, the, if you look at the literature, the very early series, a very high proportion, a fairly high proportion, higher than I was interested in, actually did develop my osteomyelitis. And in the more recent data that's coming out, it's more superficial infections. And so multiple superficial infections are not unique. They, they do happen. And it's one of the, the challenges you may have to encounter. As, as our stoma revisions, again, and, and I haven't had mine yet, but I do know of others also who have had to have um, revisions or have hypergranulation surgically removed. And so that's been another challenge along the way. And, and that hypergranulated tissue, by the way, can be uncomfortable. And, and stoma infections can also be very painful. I, I'm a very stubborn old lady, and I I keep walking and, and doing things through this, but some evenings by six or seven o'clock, I'm afraid I'm taking off my leg and getting into my wheelchair. Um, in the early days of each of my infections, I ended up doing that because um, you can only grit your teeth for so many hours a day and then and then the, the pain of the infection got, got too much for me. So that's the biological challenges that, that I have encountered. And, and I think you need to think about if you're thinking about osteointegration. The, the technical mechanical challenges have, have I think, they've irritated me more because I didn't expect them. The biological ones, I'm a nurse. I read everything that had been published, all of the studies that had been published. I made sure I was well-informed. So I knew that that journey might be bumpy. About 14 months after my osteointegration, my dual cone broke. The shear pins on the dual cone broke. And uh, you can't wear your leg when that happens. And it, it's kind of interesting because I was out at the bale feeder in the barnyard when that happened. And when that happens, your prosthesis just swings around and swings around. There's pretty much nothing you can do. It's worse than having no leg. At least with no leg, I could easily have made it to the, the utility vehicle to get back to the house. But but with that, I was, I was grabbing the bale feeder trying to get myself into the ute. Um, on, that was my second breakage, actually. That wasn't the first. So the first one, although the parts are warrantied for two years, at least through the Australian group, they are, um, my prosthetist and I believe the person who's a distributor here both had to argue quite heavily with Australia for those parts to be covered under warranty. And because they're shear pins, they argued that I must have had a fall or or done something that caused them to break. And that wasn't the case. I was actually sitting down the second time I was at the bale feeder, not doing anything violent. The first time they broke, um, I was sitting on the floor repairing a tarp. And, and all of a sudden my leg was pointing backwards and I knew something wasn't right. So um, 
so they actually had to argue and it took more than three, took about three weeks to get a leg. So I was in a wheelchair for three weeks. You decondition in 72 hours, you have muscle deconditioning. So, so it's, it's a bit of a setback to be in a wheelchair for three weeks. And there was me managing to uh, get, get to work and work from a wheelchair, but also had to present at a conference. (laughs) Uh, in Toronto. So I did that from a wheelchair as well. Um, I got to be more fully in contact with myself as a disabled person in public, which I mostly avoided because of prosthesis. Right. So that was interesting. Although my first five months I was in a wheelchair. So, but I wasn't at work while I was in the wheelchair. Um, So, so that was fine. I lost a lot of condition. I lost a lot of confidence in my parts as well. You know, when it when I wasn't doing anything and the shear pins broke and I I I really was fairly insecure after that, that, you know, and, and the fact that they argued that I had to have done something made me feel even more insecure. So we're going along nicely. And then in December, I was out at the bale feeder and and all of a sudden it broke. And I promise I was not leapfrogging over the bale feed or anything. I was braced against the bale feeder, pulling a, a feeding tarp over the bale feeder. So I wasn't even using my legs. And again, I argued, and because that should have been still under warranty. And, um, and that would have been about 16 months post, so still within the two years. And, and this time I didn't win the argument, although they didn't bring the costs down. And so you need to know that the, uh, you pay about 6,000, I think, uh, American for a dual cone. They're expensive. And, and when I got my second dual cone, I actually needed all new screws as well. And the screws are surprising costs, like $500 per screw. And so I needed two new screws as well. Um, and and so those are costs, and I did end up having to pick up that part of that the cost of the second dual cone. Again, I would argue that that wasn't even wasn't appropriate. The other thing is that that you have a less expensive uh, bushing that fits on your taper end. And I know these are all mechanical parts. I'm sorry for those of you who are osseo integrated. This will be challenging, um, but there are. Um, pins there as well and they are supposed to break first there are two levels of fail safe in the system that i have and they are actually supposed to break first and those i have an extra of and they're less expensive then the third mechanical problem i had and this this i i gotta say as a person who's osseo integrated this truly does worry me because um i wasn't expecting i didn't factor into my thinking about my life as an osseo integrated amputee that these extra costs would be quite as large as they are and quite as frequent as they are. And I'm not sure, that, I think in this case, I am a bit exceptional. I don't know of other people that have broken this many dual cones. And by the way, I'm not heavy. I'm not, I'm not a heavy person at all. I'm on the light side. So, so this isn't a weight caused issue. Right. So the second one was that in, in um, early 2020, my taper head has holes that receive the, the pins that hold the pins that are in the bushing. And those holes started to wear. And, um, and so my leg became loose quite frequently and eventually through the day, which was quite problematic. And um, my prosthetist turned everything a little bit. So they were sitting in, there were multiple holes and, and in tighter holes. And again, I wore those ones as well. I should have gone back at that point. And um, and again, because I was still within the two-year warranty period and asked for another 
taper head to replace this one because it clearly wasn't living up to its two-year warranty. Unfortunately, COVID hit. And I can tell you for nursing schools, uh, we were just working as fast as we could work and, and right. I let it slip. And so I ended up walking for two or three months in a setup that wasn't as good as it could have been. When when I finally had the time and, and my prosthetist ordered the new taper head, um, I think in early fall um, or late summer, yeah, I think it was in August I got the new taper head. It was like coming home, having it set back in the proper holes. Uh, walking was so much easier. So I had been putting up with with less than good walking for three or, or months or so. And again, and I, I hope I'm not lying about the cost, but I think we're looking at about $5,000 for that part. In addition right. to the fact that you're then going in for appointments every three months or so to have things tightened. And, and um, I know in one of your broadcasts, they talked about removing the taper head for someone when they hadn't removed it in a while and how challenging that was. So. Um, I know the first time Andrew removed my taper head to clean it, I was so frightened because it it takes a lot of pull. And then when I got my second um, dual cone, it arrived over Christmas. And I was pretty sure that no prosthetist, you know, in the days after Christmas was going to come out of spending time with, with their family to rescue some rescue me. So I actually took the parts and took my ta own taper head off but i can tell you my heart was beating quickly <laughs> I, I did that i don't recommend it i really think you need to be going to your process for these things but you know being me i i did it myself because i wanted to be back up walking again <laughs> so. right now um so maybe um you talked about a couple of pieces there um just for our listeners who who's considering oi and trying to understand the parts so the dual Perhaps describe where a dual cone sits and uh, the pins and all the screws that you talked about. Where did they sit? Because I, you know, I don't want them imagining that it's inside you and that you had to dig it out yourself there. So I just want to make sure that we understand where those things sit in, in your setup. Yes. So you have your implant and and the dual cone is called a dual cone because, because it tapers at each end a tiny bit. And one end sits inside of your implant. So, so you're not going inside your skin or anything, but you are going inside your implant. And actually, uh, there was some discussion for a while whether uh, um, that is actually considered an internal part, whether a prosthetist could put it in. I know somebody, uh, it's posting I was reading in the U.S., their prosthetist won't put it in. They actually go to their orthopedic surgeon to have it put in, which makes you know me doing it myself just slightly more wild. Um, I, I get. I think here most people, the prosthetists, do it. And this this one I knew of, where the orthopedic surgeon was doing it, was in the United States, and their rules may be slightly different. But I, there was a bit of discussion for a while about whether, you know, the prosthetist could put that part in because it was considered an internal part. The, so this dual cone part of it sits inside of your implant, and then the taper head goes on top of that with the bushing, um, and then those are all screwed tightly into place. You have two screws, an interlocking screw and a distal locking screw, um, both of which need to be checked and, and usually by your prosthetist on an ongoing basis to make sure that they're still tight. And I, I actually check my own, because I've had so much trouble, I check my own distal locking screws um, torque. I have a, a 
nothing to check torque. And I check the torque on it every week just because I've had some problems and I don't want them to happen again. And every month I check the torque on my interlocking screw. Again, this is something your prosthetist, if you're going to do it, will do for you. You don't need to be as silly as I am and as controlling as I am about these these things. <laughs> so this is where you're going to have a regular visit with your prosthetist and he or she is going to help you help you with that. So the the taper head and the bushing are considered external parts. And they're the part that you screw or clamp your prosthesis onto. And I've got to tell you, one of the things I just love about osseo integration is that I grab my leg, whack it onto the, the external attachments and screw it tight. For some people clamp or twist it tight. And it just takes me moments. And if I'm in the middle of a yoga practice where I think that yoga practice is going to be better without my leg, it's just a snap for me to get my leg off and then mm. back on again when I get to the parts of my practice where I want my leg gone. So that is one of the things I do like about osseo integration. <laughs> I sometimes have given up on practicing yoga with my prosthetics. I just... It, uh, um, Prosthetic knees don't bend the same way. You don't have as much bend as you do with a real knee. And so I can get my right knee underneath me in child's pose. And then either I've got to get my left leg, my prosthetic off, or I got that darn thing sticking out there in the great wide wild um, while, while I'm, I'm in child's pose. It's the most interesting adaptation. <laughs> yeah. At least you can bend your, your, your knee to some you know degree where you can yeah. achieve a child pose, whereas I can't. Yeah. <laughs> with so all the with, with all yeah, yeah it's 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 so it's it's slightly 90 degrees but not 90 degrees so i can't really fold it to actually do um you know do a, a, a proper pose so i just take it off and i'm like i'm fine so what advice would you have for our listeners who are considering a wire for themselves moving forward don't delude yourself that this is a miracle Go into it with your eyes open and understand the limitations. And and I'm I would actually, if you've got a, a prosthetist that that um, is interested in OI or knows about it, go and sit down with them or or a physiatrist, for instance, that knows about it. Because for some people, osseointegration may not be the right thing. For instance, if you're going to be running and jumping, osseointegration probably isn't the right choice. You are actually restricted in, from in running and jumping, but also know that you're not getting your leg back. It's not magic. You're going to have a metal implant sticking out of your leg. So you also have to get your head around that aesthetically. And I, I think that's one of the things that ahead of time, I thought would be the biggest challenge for me was this idea of having a piece of metal sticking out of my leg and, and how just really abnormal that was. And, and it bothers me way less than I anticipated it would. But, but I notice when I follow the Facebook groups that there are some people that find that very challenging. So, so think about it, get your mind around it, look at some of the pictures and, and, and come to grips with that because you, that will be, will be you. Um, realize the superficial infections. And, and I know I'm a bad example in terms of numbers, but the reality is that if you look at the literature, a significant proportion of people have osseointegration have superficial infections. And so be aware that, that that could well be part of your journey. I think also be prepared for the fact that, that you know, you're not free and easy of your prosthetist at all. You, you're really continuing your partnership with your prosthetist, just like you, you did and with your, your physiatrist and so on, just as you did when you were using a, a socket. And, and there, there will be I would say it's not that there might be, but there will be ongoing costs involved with osseointegration and, and with getting proper follow-up. 
um, in terms of, of, of making sure that you do proper care. So you, you need to learn about how to care properly for this new stoma that you have in your leg. You can't just ignore it and not take care of it. It's now part of you like your teeth that, that needs to be, be kept care of every day so that you don't develop infections and you maintain optimal health. So, and advocate now, for yourself. I can't say that enough. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, there are lots of great information. So I want to thank you so much, Dr. Wooden, for joining me today. And thank you for tuning in, everybody. If you have any comments, questions, or show ideas, please connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at The MTO Show. Until next time, I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo, and this has been The MTO Show Podcast. Thank you.